The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let's pray. Father, we do come before You relying on Your love. As we just sang there, it is Your love that opened a way for us to come and stand before You, to be received in. It is Your love that promises to us that You will hear us when we we speak and ask. It is Your love that promises to give grace and mercy to help in time of need. It is your love that assures us that what you give is actually grace, is actually mercy. It is good to us. It is good for us, even if it's hard, even if it causes tears. It is your love that assures us that one day we will stand in a place where there is no more tear and no more cry and no more anguish and no more hurt. We rely on Your love for us. It is everything. And I pray, Lord, this morning, would You please come and speak, minister to us that we would understand this love in a fresh, perhaps completely new, but perhaps just renewed way. We'll see before us in the Scripture written a long time ago about an event that happened way back. We'll see in this Scripture a testimony, a a marker about how you love and what you mean us to be as lovers beneath you. But it is easy for it to pass over us and perhaps cause a a slight remark now, but to be forgotten by Tuesday. Lord, we don't want that to happen. So would you please draw near and in love produce a change in us by opening our eyes to this passage and the love of God shown and seen in it Cause us to be different. To know this love that surpasses knowledge. That, that, there's an inherent contradiction in that statement coming off of Paul's pen in Ephesians 3. It's pointing out something that's really hard and not natural for us, but you can give power by your Spirit to know something that surpasses knowledge. In this case, How wide and long and high and deep is your love for us in Christ? Cause us to know it. And those here, Lord, who are not people of yours, who are not, who are not Christians, would you cause them to see a love that is vast and wide and could be poured out on them forever and ever and ever? Draw them. And for those of us here who do know you, Lord, renew our understanding of this and cause us to 
to swim in it and rejoice in it and cause adoration to well up in us. You are a great lover and we are short-sighted and forgetful. So open our eyes and fill our minds and change us, I pray, Lord. We rely on your love to do this. And we pray in the name of Christ, sent by your love to empower, save. We pray in his name. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to Second Samuel chapter 9. And we find here quite the contrast with last week's chapter 8. Chapter 8 was big picture, multinational, geopolitical, militaristic. And chapter 9 is the opposite of that. It's very small, very personal, almost familial. So it's, its scope is completely different, but, but also the content and the tone is quite different. Last week we saw repeatedly, the seven times, the, the idea carried in this word, striking, 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 striking. It was David striking down his enemies last week. And this week, chapter 9, is about love. Which is a, a very different feeling, a very different tone to this. Last week was, was the severity of the Lord, and this week we look at His loving kindness. Both are true. We saw chapter 8 affirming God's promised kingdom in David is going to come. It, it is on the way for sure, certain. Despite all opposition, despite all who resist it, even violently resisting it, it will come. He's going to exercise power through his king, David in the text. It says twice that God gave victory. God's the one who exercised his power through David to bring in his kingdom. And that was a fearsome truth, one presented to us that we should, we should, we should look at it soberly. It should cause us, all of us, and who we are, to look at this and sit under it carefully. If you're a Christian, if you're one who is trusted in Christ, we look at this truth soberly. The kingdom is coming despite all opposition. God in His King will strike down all opposition. We look at that and we should be soberly encouraged because it is very common for us to look out at everything in the world that is against this kingdom and to say, how in the world can God ever accomplish what He promised? Look at this. Even in my own heart. Look in my own heart. How can He ever accomplish what He said He would do in me? And the encouraging thing is, He does it. It comes in a great power, striking down all opposition. That should be encouraging to us. So don't despair. He will bring His kingdom. And for those who are yet on the outside of this kingdom, there's a warning in that, a warning that's mixed with hope. We saw that the tone throughout the chapter is one of striking down his enemies, but you'll recall there was one king who was not struck down. One king who, in the words of Psalm 2, turned to the Lord and kissed the sun so that the sun's anger would not be kindled against him. And that king found refuge in David. So there's a warning out there that has a little bit of hope. There is a way to find refuge under this king rather than a striking from this king. To turn to him, submit, repent. If you do, you'll find blessing 
And that sets us up to turn to chapter 9 with the altogether different tone of this chapter where we see some of that blessing kind of unfolded, elaborated on. Depicted for us here in a very personal event that has its roots all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 20, which we covered a long time ago. Back when Jonathan, son of King Saul, made a covenant with King David, he made a covenant with him, an arrangement. And decades have passed. It's probably been 20 plus years since then. But what was made in that covenant, what was sealed in that covenant, is now coming to pass here in chapter 9. An outpouring of loving kindness on a descendant of Jonathan. So we're going to look at this passage. I'm going to read the whole thing. It's a short chapter, 13 verses. And I'll pass back through it to make sure that we understand the details before making a couple of overarching observations. This is 2 Samuel chapter 9. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Chapter 9. The passage begins by connecting us all the way back to that covenant made with Jonathan. Back when Saul's death wish became publicly known. He'd been after David for a while, but it finally became publicly known. And David was about to flee into the wilderness. And Jonathan, who was the crown prince, he's the oldest son of Saul, next in line to the throne, he knew that the Lord had put his hand on David and had picked David to be the next king instead of his father Saul and even instead of him himself. 
Jonathan knew that and, and was rejoicing in it because he loved the Lord and saw that what God wanted was good and best. So he rejoiced in that and he made a covenant with David saying, this is all in 1 Samuel chapter 20, when you come to power, David, when you come to power, if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Jonathan is saying, David, when you come to power, as we both know you're going to, we both know what is the expected ordinary job one of a new king. Kill every rival. I'm the crown prince. I'm the chief rival. My sons after me are chief rivals. You're going to be king. Don't kill us. Instead, show to me and my sons after me, show to us the steadfast love, the loving kindness of the Lord. That's what was asked of him. And David agreed. And now all these years later, the Lord has cut off all the enemies of David. Chapter 8. And here in chapter 9, David's going to fulfill his promise. And he asked, Is there not someone of that family line of Saul that for Jonathan's sake I can show this kindness to, this loving kindness? And he gets connected to this man Ziba, former servant of Saul's, on the hunch that Ziba might know where some of them are hiding. Now, the house of Saul, if anybody's left, they're going to be lying low because they're, they're marked men for life. They're not out in public. But he's a servant in the family, so he kind of knows where where there is one. He's in this place across the Jordan River. And so when David asks in verse 3, Is there not someone of Saul's house that I may show the kindness of God to him? That's exactly the language that Jonathan used back in the covenant. Same words and everything. Very similar sentence. He asks, and David hears from Ziba, Well, there is one, a son of Jonathan, crippled in both feet. This was mentioned earlier in 2 Samuel, and we need to understand this carefully. because In, in our society here in, in America, in, in this modern day, we, we talk about in the public sphere, we talk about carefully handicapped disability. And we, we want to be equitable and fair and provide equal opportunity for everybody of different abilities. We need to be really honest and clear about that, and I want to affirm that while pointing out something that might get lost on us in our modern culture. In many other places in the world today, and certainly back in this day, the world is physical. And if you cannot physically produce, you're nothing. I'm not saying that is the case for human dignity and worth. What I'm saying is that if you can't walk, you can't grow crops, you can't work a job, you're nothing. You're powerless. There is a son of Jonathan, a nothing. Where is he? We're twice told that he lives in a place low debar, repeated line after line, which is no word. Metaphorically, can mean no significance. He lives not on the family land in the tribe of Benjamin. He lives on the other side of the Jordan River, under somebody else's care in a place called no significance, this nothing. And David goes to get him. Go fetch him and bring him here. 
which must have felt like an arrest to Mephibosheth. When David's men show up and say, you, come with us, that's not a good thing. And when Mephibosheth shows up, how we are introduced to him in verse 6, we are reminded of why that's not a good thing. Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul. He's got the wrong last name. And he comes in and see the scene. He's on the floor. He's physically unable to stand independently. He's on the floor, on his face, paying homage. Verse 6. David speaks to him, Mephibosheth, I'm your servant. Do not fear. It tells us he's afraid. Do not fear. I'm going to show you kindness. There's that word again. Steadfast, loving kindness. For the sake of your father, Jonathan, I'm going to give you back all your family land, which is to restore to him a life. It's to restore to him wealth, and, and particularly status. He will become again a placeholder in the commonwealth of Israel. He's got land that's supposed to be his, and he doesn't have it. He doesn't possess it. He's off somewhere in, in another place in Nowheresville. I'm going to give you back your estate. And it will be an income. It'll be so that you can have bread. You and, and your family, it'll be worked for you. I'm going to give you servants. I'm going to restore to you a life and status. But even better, you shall eat at my table always. Which is repeated, verse 10, verse 11. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table. 13, he ate always at the king's table. It's in there four times. He ate as one of David's sons, verse 11. Last line, who was lame in both feet, don't forget, a nothing. Powerless, helpless, an enemy. He ate at the king's table like one of the king's sons forever. And so did his family after him. He brought his kids. That should sound like something to you. We're going to talk about what's pictured here plainly, but let me sum it up in, in, in this sentence. God's king loves undeserving people, and he calls us to do likewise. God's king loves undeserving people and calls us to do likewise. I'm going to make two observations to kind of unpack that. First one is this, and I'm putting it to, to you as, as a recipient of this love from God. So it's phrased as an exhortation. Receive God's loving kindness which flows through His covenant King. I'm going to state that, and before I talk about it, I'm just going to plead with you to listen to it. Receive God's loving kindness which flows through His covenant King. The great danger right, right at this point is that everybody's going to look at their, at their bulletin or at their iPad and they're going to type in or write down the, the point and you're going to miss what I just said. God's 
loving kindness. Here. Receive it. Don't only write it down and think about it. Receive it. Please, listen and may God reach down and cause you to do more than just hear and understand, but to receive it, if you're a Christian or not, either way. Three times, 1, 3, and 7, verses 1, 3, and 7, David talks about showing kindness, but I'm going to use the word loving kindness, which is another possible English translation of the word. It can be translated a bunch of different ways. It's steadfast love back in the, in the covenant, back in 1 Samuel 20. It can be translated a bunch of different ways. I'm going to use loving kindness because in our mind, kindness can sound a little too much just like niceness. Some generic good deed. It's more than that. Broadly speaking, this word deals with love, commonly a part of covenants or contracts. So there's, there's a sense of commitment to it, of, of faithfulness, of fidelity in it. Often has a, has a note of condescension, of mercy, the one in a contract who's on, on the position of power on top gives this kind of, of faithful, good, loving commitment to the one who needs it. Loving kindness, good mercy showing. That's what David was asked for. So we've got kind of a, of a broad definition there. But then in the passage, we see it more than just defined. We see it actually acted out. We see what he does with this idea. He seeks to show it to Mephibosheth. Look what he does. He shows kindness and mercy by by removing what hangs over his head. The do not fear. What hangs over your head is a a verdict of judgment. You're on the wrong side of the line here, and I'm going to remove that right away. Do not fear. And then I'm going to give you back a life. I'm going to give you a status, a standing, and a, a life a place within the covenant people, and then he brings them into table fellowship. There's the the loving kindness of the king poured out on this one who did not deserve it. You've got to see that to understand the, the, the remarkable piece of this passage. Who did not deserve it and who knows so. He's the son of Saul, the son of Jonathan. He's in hiding in Nowheresville. He's a nobody. He has no power, no status, and he receives the loving kindness of the king poured on him. Actually, to be more technical, he receives from the king the loving kindness of God. Verse 3. Closely at verse 3. Is there not someone in the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him, which is exactly what the covenant back in 1 Samuel 20 said. The kindness of God will flow through the king onto Mephibosheth. God's loving kindness. The God who passed over the house of Saul, striking it down, striking it down, wiping it out on Gilboa, and then finishing off at Mahanaim earlier in this book. This God who anointed David and said, you're my king, not them. This God pours loving kindness through that king onto this one who has no right to it, should be struck himself. All because Mephibosheth 
is an object of a covenant that he had no part in making. Wasn't even aware of, probably. That's what's going on in this chapter. It's what's going on in the world. Today, running into your life, think. This is such a clear display of the gospel. This is transparent. You are a Mephibosheth. Do you see that? You are a Mephibosheth with no power, a nothing who lives in Nowheresville, and you by rights are an enemy who should receive from this hand wrath. But instead that hand reaches out and pulls you into a covenant that you did not make, and instead of striking you, pours out on you loving kindness. Marvelous. Gloriously, in Christ, God says to you, I'm going to remove off of you the threat. There is no anger. There is no danger. There is no wrath here. I took care of that for you on the cross before you had any idea. Glorious. Glorious. And then He says, and beyond... I give to you a life. I could just remove off of you wrath and then leave you to your devices, but I give to you a life. You, Christian, the object of this covenant made for you in the King, He gives to you a life. He walks with you every moment, through every day, in every circumstance, taking care of you, providing for your needs, blessing you and blessing you and blessing you. It is marvelous. And that's nothing by comparison. What He's really done is He's brought you into His presence and seated you at His table, seated you at His table to eat with Him at His table, seated you at His table to eat with Him at His table as a son, seated you to eat there at His table forever. Amazing. It is amazing. The expression of the loving kindness of God poured on you through the King. He has brought you near. Think about this, Christian. Think about this. He not only removes off of you wrath, He not only gives you life, but He brings you down and seats you right there face to face in communion with Him, that you can talk to Him, that you can hear from Him, that you can see who He is and how He works. You can marvel... This one that you can look at and interact with. He is the definition of beauty. He is the definition of good. And He's right there for you to have, to relate to. It is marvelous. Marvelous. Love is marvelous. And it is not just affection. This loving kindness removing of of the penalty, giving you a life, bringing you into communion with Him. It is not just about affection. See, in all of that, there there are real, tangible blessings given to you. Good things done. Mercies provided. 
I'm talking to a people here. And I, I don't know, I'm talking to some people who, you've been Christians for a long time, you've thought of this for a long time, I know, and I'm talking to some people, I know you're not Christians. And some of you I don't know at all. But again, I plead with each one of you, receive this. There is something here that must go far beyond just intellectual. Yeah, I know. God loves me. God's removed off of me wrath and has given me mercy upon mercy and grace upon grace. Yeah. If you're not a Christian, you have to see there is a love for you right here on the table in front of you found only in one place. It is very common for us all to think of God as love. And that is true. But it is God as love in a channel. God as love through a king in a covenant. The loving kindness of God is poured out through a king on you. And if you resist that king, all that's left is chapter 8 striking. You must be aware of this. And you must see that reality. But... Chapter 9 pleads with you and begs with you, you, you Mephibosheth, come into the presence of the king, fall before him and find loving kindness. Loving kindness that removes wrath, gives you a life and brings you into communion with the one for whom your heart was made forever and ever to your delight. To your delight. Come. Oh my God, open your eyes to it. I'm talking to those who are not Christians, comma, and the rest of you too. It's the same message. There is a great tragedy in the Christian church. A great tragedy in the hearts of Christians. Do you know this love that surpasses knowledge? This loving kindness that is more than just an affection that says, I am fond of that one, but no, actually engages to pour out kind mercy, faithfully securing you, never letting go of you. Do you know that? Many of us don't, which is why Paul prays in Ephesians 3, you can look at this later, write it down. Ephesians 3, end of the chapter, maybe 17, 18, 19, 20, follow on through there. He prays there that God, by His Spirit, would give strength to Christians. He's praying for the church. That God, by His Spirit, would give strength to Christians. For what purpose? To resist sin? No. It's a good thing, yeah. But that's what he's talking about. Strength to Christians to be effective witnesses? Nope. But that's a good thing too. Strength to Christians, we work through the argument, that they would be rooted and established in love and comprehend the breadth and depth and height and length of the love of God for them which surpasses knowledge. Paul says you need the Spirit of God to give you strength to know 
the loving kindness of God on you. Do you know it? Do you know it? I know that you know something of it. You're a Christian. You have to. You, you have to. But do you know it? Here's a clue. You can help answer that question for yourself. You could keep following Paul's sentence there because that's not the end of the sentence. That surpasses knowledge, comma, that they may be filled with all the fullness of God. Knowing this loving kindness of God on you leads to and is the path to, there isn't any other path, is the path to the fullness of God dwelling in you. It's the fullness of God dwelling in you. Are you captured by filled with the fullness of God? Are you controlled by God's nature? Is God's life in you, welling up in you such that you you feel about the world, you look at the world like God feels about it, like God looks at it, that you evaluate yourself and your circumstances as God looks at you and as God evaluates your circumstances, are you becoming more like Him, filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? Are you being filled with all the fullness of God? No? Do you know the love? The great tragedy in the church in individual Christians, and believe me, I, I am in this, I'm in this boat too. But I point this out to you for your, what would be a marvelous thing for you. The great tragedy amongst Christians is that we know of God's love for us, but do not walk experiencing it moment after moment and day after day. And then the fullness of God is not controlling us. So what do you do about that? Paul prays, Spirit of God, give them strength. So I pray that the Spirit of God would give you strength, would, would give you a, a power in your mind to take hold of yourself and say, what's going on here? And what's true about God and God's attitude towards me? How does the Lord look at me in Christ what is His loving kindness? What is His mercy? What is His faithful commitment to me look like? You would take hold of yourself, match those things up, and believe. That, that's, that's a work of God in you. So I pray for that. Pray for that. But what you also can do is you can take the Word of God and read it and see what it is He says about you. How it is that He feels about you. There is something glorious and amazing here that on people who are undeserving, God has poured out loving kindness. 
He looks on you and smiles at you, his adopted child. Which means you walk through life and it is okay. give you a little bit of feedback. I, I, look at, I look at a congregation even in the last few minutes and I see some mix of faces that look to me like they're engaged, some mix of faces that look like they're not engaged, some mixes of faces that clearly are trying to count the lights in the ceiling. I, I, don't, I don't berate you for that. But I encourage you Somebody, not me, somebody is talking to you about life right here. Not me. Somebody is talking to you about something that if you would grab hold of this and take it with you through your days, it would change everything for you. You would go to the doctor and you would hear it's cancer, it's inoperable. You've got six months or whatever. And what would flood into your mind as the fullness of God fills you is, okay, the loving kindness of God remains on me, has removed off of me wrath, has given me a life, and means for me to use this to His glory and my good. That's what I've been taught. I actually believe that. God looks on me even in this in loving kindness and means to do me great good. It is not just an affection. Human affection, you realize the difference here. Human affection, if I actually love you, I might not be able to do anything about it. You might just have cancer and you might just die and I might just say, well, I'm, I'm really grieved by that, I'm sorry. The love of God for you says, I am in control of that and I am doing something with it for your good to bless you. This is about life. It would affect how you walk into your marriage when spouse or husband or whoever shuns you and hurts you and insults you and the love of God pours into your mind. The fullness of God fills you and you realize He is good. He loves me. He cares for me. He is showing me mercy even right now in this moment. And you would believe all the stuff that we talk about. I'm not saying anything new. I'm saying you'd actually believe it. That would change you. Knowing things don't, doesn't change you at all. You would believe it. And you would not fear. And you would not cringe. You would not wallow in depression. You would have hope. Sorrow, yes. And you would rejoice. Do you know, may God give you power, that you would know He loves you with a wide and long and high and deep love that is not going anywhere. This is about life. It is the most deadly, serious, glorious thing there is. 
Do not treat it lightly. It takes strength to know it. How fortunate you are. How fortunate you are. If you are in Christ. And God's loving kindness is flowing to you through that King. And if you aren't, come. Come and be forgiven and be loved. To see this, to see this should leave us in verse 8. What is your servant that you should regard me like that? A dead dog that I am. It is amazing. It is amazing. And it calls for a response. Here's the second observation then. Seeing what has happened to us, we also see in the passage what we should do. Let me express the second observation like this. Love then... Because He first loved us. I'll put it personally to you. Love then because He first loved you. We look at David and we see what he does. And we see in that, here's how the kingdom works. Here's the, here's the, here's the king. God's love pouring through the king on the undeserving. This is what the great king, the anointed great king, the Messiah, the Christ is like. We see, ah, we look at David, there's what it's like to be like Christ. And then you could kind of turn it and see, we look at David and see, oh, if I want to be Christ-like, there's what it is to be Christ-like. To pour out this love that I have received, to be a conduit for it. Or I could approach it differently and say, Mephibosheth collapses the second time before David in verse 8. Amazed at what he just heard in verse 7. What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Does that remind you of any other place in the recent Bible? A couple of chapters ago. It's very similar to David's response after he hears from the Lord his covenant love poured out on him in the middle of chapter 7. And David goes in and sits down before the Lord. Who am I? That you should talk about this for me. Very similar. David heard of the covenant love of God for him and then turns a couple chapters later and says, is there someone that I can pour that out on? Mephibosheth. That's what conformity to the God of covenant love looks like. To be not just a recipient of, but a distributor of the loving kindness of God. That's us too. We as Christians love then because He first loved you. It's modeled right here. We see it in what David does. I picked the language up though from a commandment of the New Testament. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 or verse 11 or verse 19, it's everywhere there. 
Jesus Himself commanded it in John 13, 34, Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. You'd be a recipient of and a distributor of the love of God. Sit before the Lord and pass it on. Amazed at what God has done for me. I see in that. Follow the, follow the, the thinking here. I look at Him and I see what He has done for me, how He has secured me, has secured my life, has given me a seat at His table and taken care of all of my every need. I can give my life away. I don't need to hold on to it. I can give my life away and love you then. To love someone else who's in this covenant. That's the first, most immediate application. When Jesus, when the New Testament commands us over and over and over again, they emphasize particularly those of the household of faith. Love one another is talking to Christians in the church. Love one another. Pass on God's loving kindness to other brothers and sisters. And by that, the world will look at that and say, that is a unique people who lives under and in and is characterized by this remarkable love that does not exist out here. That's different. Can you imagine a church like that? You almost kind of have to imagine a church like that. Maybe there's some call for repentance there. And and an exhortation to look back again at how it is that God has loved you. As you look at how God has loved you, there's something in there that frees you from the need to love yourself and take care of yourself and to give it all away. To love the people of God in the community and not just the people that that we like already. It's love poured on the undeserving. And in our eyes, we are are often, it it is, let's be honest, it is easier to love some people than it is to love others. That varies depending on who's talking. But it always is easier for us, for me, to love somebody than it is to love somebody else. That's always the way it is. Why? This other person is going to require something of me that's hard to give. Unless my life is already secured somewhere else. To love the undeserving. To love the hard. I'm I'm not trying to erase the realities of of different personalities. I'm probably always going to connect with certain people a little easier. And there's something in God's design for that. Okay, So don't, don't, don't hear me to say we all should treat everybody exactly alike. We are different by the design of God. That's okay. However, I, I encourage you, guard yourself against using that as an escape valve to not give yourself away to people that are hard. That's what's remarkable in the church. Everybody out there gives themselves away to people who are easy. Did not Jesus say that? Well, no kidding, you love your friends. So does everybody else. The church, the mark that's unique about the church is that we love difficult people. And you know what? 
may be the means by which the difficult person grows and becomes a little less difficult. You might be used of God to help this person understand God's love for them or for, for him or for her. And to see, I, I don't need to whatever sin I'm resorting to, whatever tendency I have, I can, I can let go of that. God has me. And I believe that now, having seen it in this brother, in this sister, you might be God's means of growing that person. We love because He first loved us. And primarily, we must realize we love people in the congregation, in the church. But not only them. We love beyond the covenant community to love our enemies also, those on the outside. That's how God draws people to Himself. You've got to understand, Mephibosheth here, to everybody, including him, looks like an enemy. Looks like he's on the outside. Unbeknownst to him, he's an object of a covenant. There are people out there who look like enemies. Unbeknownst to them and to us, they are objects of God's covenant love. And how He will draw them in, He will woo them with kindness and lead them to repentance. That might come off of your lips, off of your hands. It means for us to love those in the church, to love those outside of the church. But lastly, primarily and especially, above all, we love God Himself. Because He first loved us. Do you ever find yourself in a worship setting? Maybe an hour ago in this room. Singing along to the songs. I like this one. This one not so much. This one's too fast. This one's too slow. Not enough or too much electric guitar. Whatever. Or reading your Bible all by yourself in your basement and just reading it. Ever find yourself there? Of course you do. We all do. What's not going on there? Adoration. We were led through acts, adoration. I didn't know this was going to happen, but the A, adoration. I just ask you to think back a minute. Were you mouthing words of adoration or were you adoring? I say that carefully to you, not because I want to, don't do that. That's not the point at all. The point is, do you see the difference between adoration and mouthing words of adoration? Mouthing words of adoration is completely unsatisfying. And it isn't actually honoring to God either. But actually adoring, that's what you were made for. And that's what honors Him. There is a great gulf between mouthing words of adoration and adoring. How do you get to adoring? We love. 
because He first loved us. You get to adoration by going all the way back to the beginning and gazing upon a God who through His King has poured out on you loving kindness that has changed forever for you. Forever. What a marvelous and glorious and great and immeasurable and unending truth this is. I'm talking about life here. Not some abstract concept about honoring God. I'm talking about the life you were made for. You know there is a great gulf between mouthing words of adoration and adoring. And you want to adore. You want to rejoice, not just say you're rejoicing. May God move on you to to change, to give you strength so so this lives. May God give that. And may you seek it and seek it and seek it and ask Him for it. People who want something, seek it. You want this. You want this. Do not be satisfied with just mouthing the proper words knowing the correct theology. You want God in all of His fullness filling you. You want to know the breadth and the depth and the height and the love of this God for you. So beg Him for it and go look at it in the Scriptures and say, Spirit of God, change me. For your good I plead with you and for you. This is a God who in unending mercy and grace has brought you near and seated you at His table and smiles on you every moment. Every moment. Even through your sin. He works on your sin, of course, but He smiles on you and deals with you as a gracious and tender Father. In every moment. Through all of your uncertainty and through your doubt and your confusion and your fear, as you're messing up everything, you're doing so seated in His presence with His smile on you. And also through all of your triumphs and all of your victories and all your glorious nice tries, same, the same in His presence, with His smile on you. He's loved you with an everlasting love and He draws you with cords of loving kindness. Draws you near with cords of loving kindness. Do you know it? May God give strength that you would know how wide and long and high and deep is His love for you. That's what the King is like. A king who loves and then expects us to pass on that love to others as a testimony to him, to his praise, and for our great good. Let me pray. Lord, we simply ask for power by your Spirit. to teach us that which we don't know, to give us strength to comprehend that which surpasses understanding. So Paul prays, that's what we pray. 
that in your people here, Lord, Christians. Do that in those who are not yet Christians. I pray, draw. Draw men and women to you. Show your great love for us. We look to you in hope and in thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.